Our scripture reading is from the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 21. This is God's word. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please be seated. Father, would you now meet us here? Would you... Do just what Paul has prayed. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold, as the psalmist says, wonderful things from your word. Teach us, we pray. Form us from your word for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you will note that... uh, The sermon that we are in today is not from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, This is a one-week step aside. Uh, We'll be back in Mark next week. But there are reasons for this one today uh, that I hope will become clear as we go. But we'll be back in Mark next week. I probably won't ever forget the very first time I got on an airplane. And I'm guessing if you've flown, uh, you don't forget that first time that you go from the... this gravity-laden world in which we live, and you break the bonds of earth and ascend into the sky, that takeoff was still vivid to me many years later. But so was coming through the clouds and seeing the other side of the clouds for the first time, recognizing that there's more to this world than I'd ever really seen before. But with each subsequent trip, it's not the takeoff or the clouds uh, from then on, it's, it's actually been as special as they still are, I guess. Uh, it's not that. It's more of what I see from that height. In looking down, and the closer the plane is to the ground, the more vivid this picture is. And I remember seeing from a, an airplane the majestic Rocky Mountains that looked different than they did on the map. I remember seeing coming flying into central Virginia and the Blue Ridge Mountains and all their autumn display of beauty and being struck by that kind of view. And I still get <clears throat> struck when we fly into Middle Tennessee and the, the, the rolling hills and the lush green. Three very different types of beauty that, that we live around or in the midst of and don't always appreciate. We're so close to all of that, 
But sometimes we fail to see the fullness of the beauty that is all around us. And the same is true, sadly, but reality is the same is true of the beauty and depth of the gospel. The glorious truths, and we're actually picking up in the middle of chapter 1, if you didn't notice, and for for 14 verses prior, that's what Paul has done. He's laid out the lavish, full beauty of the gospel in vivid detail. And it's and it's a fact of our own lives that, that we can be so close to the truth, but be like those that Jesus described as seeing but do not see. He used that expression a couple of different times in the Gospels, once in Mark that we ran into earlier in Mark chapter 4, that, that we may be those who see but do not see. What happens What happens when we fail to see the fullness of the beauty of the gospel? Another way of putting that is, what happens when the gospel truth that we become familiar with sits on the surface of our hearts? A little bit like uh, the flash flooding that some of you experienced recently. That, that so much shows up at one time, it can't soak into the ground and it, and it runs off and creates problems, uh, deadly problems at times. Is it possible that the truth and the beauty of all that is ours in Christ sits on the surface of our hearts and like runoff fails to penetrate and inform and shape us well, I think it's not only possible, I think it's, it's very common. Paul seems to think so too. We'll get to that in a bit. So what happens when that happens? Well, John Piper said about this passage, he said, referring to Judas, Judas, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, walked with him for three years. And at the end, he still loved money more than the excellency of Christ. That can happen. So what happens? Inconsistency at best, never really finishing at worst, unless the gospel truth, the the, the beauty of the gospel sinks in. That's what Paul seems to be doing here, is to helping us to see that we grow as disciples by learning and grasping all that is ours in Christ. That's how we grow. That's what's on Paul's mind here and why he prays. We'll get to that too. He wants us to see that there's a true spirituality produced by God's Spirit. And we might say that what Paul is doing here is he's taking the gospel that, that, that we are familiar with and he's pressing it in. He's pressing it in deeper. That's what he's doing in this prayer. We, here we see shepherding and discipleship at its best, frankly. And we're going to look at it uh, just by asking and trying to answer um, three questions. One is, what does he pray? What is it that Paul prays? And then, why does he pray it? And then, what does it produce? What does he pray? Why does he pray it and what does it produce? What is it that Paul prays? Well, look with me at verses 17 and 18. That's really, uh, that's the heart of Paul's prayer here, verses 17 and 18. And he prays. 
He's, there's four elements to this. He prays for the spirit of wisdom. That the Father would give you, friend and follower of Christ, the spirit of wisdom. Now, my translation has capital S. That's a, that's a uh, translator's estimate of what that verse is, verse is referring to. That the, the capital S, Holy Spirit. Um, later on in, in a prayer in chapter 3, he talks about his spirit, referring to capital S, Holy Spirit. So that's a very likely translation. In addition, in Isaiah 11, we read about the spirit of wisdom and understanding, capital S. That's the spirit that rests on the servant of God, Jesus. The spirit of God, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. So that's very likely what he's referring to there, that the Holy Spirit, that when, and he, he's basing that on the reality that when you believe in Christ... God's Spirit dwells in you. He writes about that several times. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? That the, the, the Holy Spirit indwells you when you believe in Christ. And that's the Spirit who grants wisdom. He is a he. Is a he. The Spirit is a person. The Spirit is not simply an impersonal force or power. Although He is forceful and powerful, He is a he. <laughs> A person is at work, and as a person, he is the one who imparts wisdom or teaches wisdom. If you learn anything today, if I learn anything, even standing here, it's because the Spirit of God is the one at work teaching and informing and impressing upon us the truth of who he is and who we are and what he has done for us in Christ. So he prays for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And by that word here, he's not, not, he is not referring to new information, new revelation, additional f- uh, add-ons to what has been revealed. He's really using a word that here means illumination. It's like the light comes on that so we can see what is there. It's why sometimes we read the Bible or it's read to us and it doesn't mean anything to us. It doesn't grab our attention because there's something missing and that is the spirit of wisdom and revelation that illumines. And that's why some of you have read a passage uh, at, at this point in life that meant nothing to you earlier in life. It's also why you will read something later that means more then than it even does now, that the Spirit illumines the Word and, and brings it home. The aha. Oh, that's what that is. That's the work of the Spirit that Paul is praying for. The Spirit of wisdom and of revelation so that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. And just think about that for a moment. That's a strange picture, isn't it? The eyes of your heart. We don't think of our heart with eyes. Well, you know, I, I hope by now that, that when the Bible talks about heart, it's talking about not the organ that pumps blood. It's the you that is you. It is your soul. It is the thing that is most central. It's the operating center of your life. It's where decisions are made. It's where choices are made. It's where will is exerted. It's where affections take shape. That is your heart. And that heart has eyes. That heart has eyes to see when the Spirit of God illumines and opens them. You might say with Paul that, well, there are head eyes and there are heart eyes. You know, we see things with these these things, sometimes with help, but illumined 
by the light around us to be able to see things. Well, he's simply saying that there's a spiritual element to, that's below all of that. Then in addition, you can see with your eyes and not see with your heart. And that's what he's after. Not to simply read the words on the page, but have the words on the page enter into the depth of who you are. To land, to explode, to run to run rabid within you. That's, that's really what he's talking about. That the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. And here's, here's, the good, here's a takeaway. Paul assumes that Christians don't see all they need to see. And I hope that's a little bit of an encouragement to you. <laughs> when you are at a place where you recognize, I just don't get it all. Paul assumes that. And he says, that's, that's normal. It's normal that, that you need eyes to see what you cannot see. And when you don't understand all that, that we need to see, be encouraged because Paul addresses that and there is a remedy for that. And that's where, where we are and why we are in this text today. The spirit of wisdom and revelation that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened so that you may know by coming to know more of him is a good way of understanding what Paul is saying there. More of him. It's, it's not that we know some of him, but there's more of him to know. There are some things about you that I know, those of you that I do know, but I don't know everything there is to know. And that's always the case with God, that we don't know all that there is to know. That will always be true in this world. But Paul is saying we press on to know from Hosea. That's his language. We press on to know the Lord. The word there, it's a rich word in Scripture. You, you understand and remember perhaps that this is the same kind of knowing that Adam knew Eve. It's that intimate. It's that engaging. And we are to know God the Father more and more of Him. It's a rich word made richer. The, the word is not actually know. It's, a, it's the word know with a prefix that simply intensifies it and multiplies it. It's like a highlighter as he has taken out to say, not just the general knowing by which we know things, but this is a full kind of knowing. And we are to know him and can know him more and more than we do. I'm going to guess that, that at this stage of your Christian life, for those of you that belong to him or following him, that you know more now than you did earlier. And the, and the reason for that is that God has opened your eyes and has given you a spirit of wisdom and revelation to see more of who he is. But the same God that does that is the one who will show you more and more and more because we've not arrived and we're not done and neither is he. So that's what Paul prays. But I want to take a moment just to try to think with you a little bit about why he prays it. That's what Paul prays. Why does he pray? Well, probably lots of reasons. I'm going to give you four quick ones. And they, I promise they'll be quick. He, he, he prays because he wants them to continue growing. That's the first thing. Verse 15, he says, For this reason, because of what I see in you. And what do I see? I see your, your faith in Christ and your love for one another. That's evidence 
that the gospel is at work in you. That's gospel fruit uh, that is being born, believing in him, trusting in him, and loving one another. And I see that, and I raise you. <laughs> he says, what, what, you've, what I see there, I want to see continue to grow. That's why Paul prays this. Because we don't get to a landing spot and sit there. And just like we're treading water, we actually are going somewhere. We're going on this journey and we're going more and more in. As C.S. Lewis put it, we are going further up and further in to the, to, the, to the new world to come. And so is our understanding and knowledge of God getting bigger and bigger. He wants them to grow. The second... He knows that they deal with cluttered hearts. John Piper says, <clears throat> for 14 verses, he's just unloaded a dump truck of glorious truth. It's just, it's just there it is. It's just there. 14 verses of glorious truth that you and I could spend the rest of our lives mining and considering and pondering and taking hold of. And it's almost... A way of saying that Paul says, okay, I've laid that out. Now, how do you deal with that? How do you take hold of all of this glorious truth? Sometimes you may feel that when you, you there's a sermon that comes at you that's just full of more than you can take. Or, or, or Paul's words as he, as he rolls it out, there's just more. It's that long run-on sentence where he starts writing and he cannot stop. And when he does stop, he says, I'm going to stop and pray for you. I'm going to pray right now that you would be able to take hold of the truth and the depth and the beauty of the gospel. He knows their hearts are cluttered. And the way Piper put it is, your heart and my heart is clogged with endless junk. Whether it's stuff that comes from the TV or media, or maybe it's the stresses and the anxieties of our lives, there's something that needs to be cleared away for us to be able to see. I wear these glasses and occasionally I'll put, take them off and realize, how in the world did I ever see through these things? They've gotten so mucky and dirty with fingerprints and dust and things. And we have to have the, thing, the, the vision cleared off. And that's what Paul is praying here. You, we, and I, we have cluttered hearts. And we spend an hour on Facebook and it's more cluttered. And there's plenty of stuff that, that just needs to go in order for us to see things that are worth seeing and glorious and beautiful. Um, so that's the second reason. He wants them to grow. He knows they deal with cluttered hearts. The third reason suggested is spiritual hunger can lead to truth or error. I mean, think about that. You can take a little bit of the gospel and mix it with something else, and you don't, guess what you have? It's not the gospel anymore. And there are plenty of things passing through Christianity that started out with the right elements, and there's been so much diluted, added to it, that it's no longer the gospel. And Paul knows that. And so he prays. And then finally, the fourth one, he prays this prayer, I think, because he knows how harsh life can be. His own story. Let me read just briefly. You don't need to turn, but this is from 2 Corinthians 11. This is Paul's own bio. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
at night and a day adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, often without food, cold and exposure, and, and that's not the end. Paul knew what, how harsh life could be. What is it? What sustained Paul under those pressures? And I would suggest to you there's only one possible answer. That he had a vital knowledge of God and, that he, and a vital understanding of what he was about to pray for this church. You see, a greater steadiness, the, the gospel gives us a greater steadiness in the midst of life's trials Serious thought about God and his gospel steadies us. And when your life crashes and when your life crumbles, you need lots of things. You may, mean, you may need dollars to help you through a crisis. You will definitely need friends to walk beside you and maybe just to sit with you in the brokenness. But what Paul seems to, to shout here is, that in the harshness of, of life, that the thing you need most is a vital knowledge of God and the glories of the gospel because that's what he's about to pray. That's what he prays. That's why he prays it. Now, what does it produce? And that's verses 18 to 21. He prays these things so that you and I we pray this, that we would have a clearer grasp of the gospel. And he comes at it in three ways. He breaks it down. There's more to be said, but this is how he said it. I pray that, that you would know in a deeper capacity that you would know the hope to which you were called. That there is that there is a call of God upon your life. And somebody said, when God calls you, it's, it's more like a subpoena than it is an invitation. <laughs> but God has called you to himself. And right there, right there is where we find our, our hope begins to take shape in his love for us. And there is a hope to which we've been called. And that hope is all wrapped up in Christ. It's who he is. And so the one thing I need in, the, in, my, in my cluttered life or in my harsh, the harshness of my life is what I need is a clearer vision of an understanding and grasp of the hope. Christ in you, Tony, the hope of glory. That there is a hope that is yours. Now we're hoping in something all the time. And the question before us is, is this the hope that orders your life? Is this the glorious truth that you pursue? that you are after more of, the, more of him who has given you all of himself. So our hope is that, is that we have life in the presence of God, that we would appear with Christ in glory at the end, Colossians 3, and that we anticipate being presented to Christ, as Paul will write later in Ephesians, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That is your hope, Christian. <laughs> That is Paul's prayer that that would take on a fuller orbit in your life. It would be predominant. That that would be what your life is about. That you and I would know the hope to which we are called. 
that you and I would know and grasp the riches, the, the glory of, of his inheritance in the saints. Now bear with me for a moment here because you should be asking a question there. The glory of the riches of his inheritance in the saints. And here's the question. Okay, inheritance. Is he talking about the inheritance that God receives or the inheritance that he bestows? Because you can make a case for either. In fact, if you look at a parallel passage in Colossians 1, that prayer that we just prayed earlier and read, that suggests that God's inheritance refers to what he will give us. And what he has to give us is everything and himself. Peter will say, Christian, you do have an inheritance in heaven that is being kept for you. It will not fade. It's being preserved for you. He will also say, and you were being kept for that inheritance by faith. There is an inheritance that is yours that is glorious and full and abounding and mind-boggling and vision-blowing. We can't grasp what God has in store for us. He also wants you to know that that's yours now. That you've taken ownership of that inheritance. It will be received in full in the day to come. But Paul wants us to understand that. But there's one other thing I think he probably has in mind too. The Old Testament authors consistently taught that God's people were his inheritance or possession. God's treasured possession. That was the t-shirt that Israel wore. It's, it's who you are. You are his treasured possession. You are his inheritance. And that seems to what he says in the context. That God has prepared something for himself to enjoy in eternity. And it is you. Do you know what that means? That means if no one in this world ever delights in you, that there is one who not only does, but always will. And when we look for others to affirm and choose and to love us and to choose us over someone else, just know this. There is one who has called you his inheritance, who delights in you today and forever. One writer about this passage says, most Christians tend to assume that we'll sneak in the back door of heaven, hopefully with no one noticing, and then hide in the, back, in the shadows of the back row of the heavenliest stadium. But with astonishing generosity, God has planned that we will be his inheritance forever. He delights in you. If no one else does, he always does. That's what Paul wants you to get. The hope of your calling, the riches of his inheritance in the saints. And finally, the greatness of God's power. 
Paul piles up power words to express immeasurable greatness of God's power, the working and his great might toward believers. And what's, what I want you to hear in that is the power that, ra- Paul says it, the power that is at work in you is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That is the power that guarantees that you will receive all that is before you, but it's also his working in you now. We are not impotent. We are weak, but we are not impotent because of the power that is at work in us to choose righteousness over sin, to follow his will rather than our own, to put the needs of others above our own. And those, are all, those all require something supernatural because they don't come natural, do they? I want you to hear Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 because he gets this. Again, he comes at it again. For this reason, I bow before my fathers, before my, before my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Do you hear it again? Strengthened with power in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the knowledge of God. What he's saying there is that there is a supernatural need because naturally we can't get there. We need something from outside of us to get us where God wants us to be. That's the work of His Spirit coming alongside and inside to help us to see the fullness and the beauty and the dimensionlessness of Christ's love. Because that, friends, is transforming. That is what that empowers. And what it empowers is what Paul prayed in Colossians 1, that we would walk worthy. You know, most of us, Well, I'll say most. I think it's most. You can tell me. It's common (laughs) to somehow make, try to make the leap from conversion to Christ, coming to faith in Christ, and walking worthy. We go from A to B. And what Paul is saying is there's something in between. There's something in between coming to faith in Christ and walking worthy. And he spends three chapters in Ephesians unfolding that. It's this rich beauty of the gospel. It's only when we see and and apprehend, oh, just even a bit of of the glory of the gospel, that it has that transforming effect in us so that we do walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Not without flaw, not without, without failure, but consistently over a period of time and increasingly more and more. So that we're, as Paul says to those who love well, he says, I want to see your love more and more. I want to see fruit born in your life. I want to, I want to see you stepping into God's call to your life to live in this, in this manner. So we need help. We need supernatural help to see this. Richard Lovelace wrote these words. I found these words. um, 
I'll just say penetrating. When he says, this is not an experience which can be worked up by human initiative. It is a gift of sovereign grace produced by the illuminating presence of the Spirit of God. This illumination is not given to all Christians equally. And not every Christian enjoys it continuously. But since Paul prays that all the Ephesians may receive it, we may assume that every Christian should experience in, in the, it in the measure needed to overcome sin and nourish faith and hope and love. It is because the Holy Spirit can produce such an illuminated vision of God that He is called in verse 14, which we did not read, Arabon, a first installment of heaven itself. That's who resides within you. That's the power that, that Paul wants you to, to grasp and understand. The hope of your calling, the riches of that inheritance, and the power that is at work in, in you is something that you can experience in this world. The power of God at work in you to move further up and further in, as Lewis put it, into his call upon our lives. Well, I want to try to apply this. There's a couple of ways. And what I think our takeaway from Paul's prayer here is that there's nothing more important for you and me than to grasp and to take hold of the knowledge of God, more, knowing more and more of Him and His lavish provision for us in Christ. There's nothing more important than that. You know, Paul could have prayed for a lot of things. He could, there's, this church certainly had a lot of needs. But it's instructive to us to take hold of what he has prayed. So here is the takeaway. I want to suggest that you make Paul's curriculum your own. And I use that word curriculum because that's what your elders have done. If you've ever been on the Cornerstone website, I hope you have, you may have seen these words from what we call the Cornerstone Way. The church has been given the responsibility to train and equip men and women, boys and girls, to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's part of our mission. A disciple of Christ is a learner and a follower Someone who sits at the feet of Jesus to know him and obeys the call of Jesus to follow him. And don't you hear that in Paul's prayer? To know more and more of who he is and what, it, what he has done for us. It's what your elders have done in, in setting forth the cornerstone way and that mission of the church. It's also what your elders have done in setting a new direction that we want to see put in place in the coming weeks on Sunday mornings a new, what, we, what is being called a school of discipleship. Classes, conversations around this notion designed in such a way that you, friend, will, would know God and the gospel of God in deeper and profound ways. And as a result, would walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And the efforts are underway to, to, to present this to you and to provide it for you in a format and a fashion where learning does occur and God is glorified. That is our hope. And you'll hear more about this in the weeks to come.
So make Paul's curriculum your own. But secondly, take Paul's prayer as your own. Could I get personal just for a minute? I mean about you. <laughs> How do you pray, typically? What are your prayers? When, when you pray and when, when we pray, I'm asking myself this as well. What do those prayers sound like? David Pallison says there are three, three categories and types of prayers. There's circumstances. There's prayers for transformation. And there's prayers for, that are kingdom-oriented about the advance of the kingdom in the world. We hear that in the Lord's Prayer, all of that, right, in a, in a sense. But of those three categories, what do, what do your prayers sound like? I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest and suppose that most of our prayers have to do with circumstances. And it is right that we pray for circumstances, that we pray for jobs, that we pray for health, we pray for circumstances that are discouraging. We pray for protection. Those are legitimate and godly prayers. But I would suggest to you that it's the middle of those three transformation that Paul has in mind here. And, it, and it's an invitation and a calling to step in and to take Paul's categories more to heart. It may mean that you and I need to modify the way we pray for ourselves, for our children, for our family, friends, and for one another. If you remember this church, you have an elder and a deacon praying for you. Elder, deacon, shepherding team, this is how you pray. <laughs> you pray for health. You pray for jobs. You pray for financial difficulties. But we are to take Paul's categories as our own and to pray that, that God would open eyes to see what needs to be seen in the midst of the harshness of life. To, to understand hope and inheritance and power. We have a prayer team that prays weekly. Prays for the needs of the church. That's how it's built. Prayer team, this is how you are to pray. Not only for the people in the hospital and the needs that are there and very legit and real and, and difficult, but to pray that eyes would be opened. To pray for hearts to be settled in the gospel. To see more and more of the glory and the beauty of the gospel in the midst of the harshness of life. That's how we pray. Home fellowship groups. That's how you are to pray for one another. Members. This is how you are to pray. Parent. This is how you pray for that child. Oh, please do. Continue praying for health and safety and, and friends for the friendless. And, and we want to pray as, as they go through this stage of life that, that, they, would, that they would survive. <laughs> but pray that the eyes of their heart would be opened to see what is true and lovely and beautiful that they will not see unless he does. Because none of us see these things unless he does. You might, all of us, might consider memorizing this prayer as a way to pray. There are a lot of other good prayers, too. We've used, there's, I've read a third, a second one, and we used a third, and 
in our reading today. So there's three prayers before you. Two, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, Colossians 1. There's one in Philippians. There's Bible prayers lots of places. Take those as the way that we pray for one another. But in the midst of it all, ask God to make your heart as big as the promises of God and drink it in. Drink that in until your heart catches fire with the truth. Soak yourself in the truth about all that we have in Christ until the greatness of it breaks out in our hearts. And then the next time you see the Rocky Mountains from the air, or the Blue Ridge Mountains in the fall, or the lush green rolling hills of Middle Tennessee, stop and think. There's something more glorious, more beautiful, more captivating than the, than, the, than, the, than the grandest vista this world has to offer. Because it comes from the world to come. A world made new. With you as God's inheritance. That's beauty. That's life-altering. That is hope. And there's this powerful spirit at work in you to maintain that and to move you and me through the harshness of life in this world because there's something more true than the world that we're in. It's the world to come. And it has come. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, would you weave those realities as true as they are into our hearts and lives? Would you give us eyes to see what we cannot see until you do? Would you help us to take Paul's curriculum as our own, to want to know more and more of the hope and the inheritance and the power that is ours in Christ, that all you have for us, that we may be those who, as Hosea calls us, have pressed on to know you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.